Listeners, I'm afraid I must inform you of an extremely unfortunate event. Several of them, in fact. So many that we've decided to create a podcast to chronicle them all. But if you're interested in well-produced podcasts with celebrity guests, you would be better off listening to something else. There will be no famous people on this show, and only the cheapest editing software will be used. There won't even be a Squarespace ad. For those of you brave enough to stay, welcome to our perilous podcast discussing a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Welcome to Not So Young Adults, where two former teens try to recapture the glory days of their youth by discussing their favorite young adult books and figure out what makes them so darn tootin' good. As always, I am joined by my co-host and resident librarian, but she hasn't graduated yet, Jess! Hey y'all, I'm almost the most educated person in the room. Yeah, you guys kind of slipped into a bit of an argument we were just having. We're debating who is the most educated out of us. Yeah. Well, Spencer has two associate's degrees plus a bachelor's. I only have my bachelor's, but I have a lot of credits of my master's done. So who, It doesn't count until you graduate. That's what I'm saying. Who's more educated? We'll find out later. I'll tell you who's not educated. Every adult in this story. Are you? I know. I know. Let me just say a couple oh. of things, though. I, you know, I really enjoyed this book. I felt like it was a little bit more mature than the last books. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think they're going to keep getting darker. That's for sure. Yes. It's kind of the Harry Potter trend. Okay. And and I like that. Yeah. Today we're talking about The Wide Window. That's what we've been referencing, which is the third book in the series of unfortunate events. Mm -hmm. Which, if you don't know, it's basically if you took all the tragic anime backstories... (laughs) and just put it into a children's book like that vibe right well yeah this is like a tragic anyone's backstory it's Mm -hmm. it's like the first five minutes that they glance over Mm -hmm. that's what these books are yeah it's great and we're gonna go over what happened in this week's book so jess could you start us off by reading out the book's epigraph gladly for beatrice i would much prefer it if you were alive and well yeah me too indeed i feel that i feel that in my bones yeah, like that's so sad. Yeah, I'm kind of kept myself from learning too much about Beatrice. I may have to at some point just through research, but I'm kind of liking the mystery. I know there's a whole other book about her, which we actually purchased recently. Yes, we have. We haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm excited to see that mystery unravel a little bit. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are. Let's focus on the task at hand, which is, of course, as you said, the, the wide window, which begins with the Baudelaire children who, after the murder of their uncle Monty at the hands of the dastardly Count Olaf, dastardly doesn't seem like a harsh enough word. No, no. At this point, maybe in book one, but in this... Psychotically criminal? Yeah. 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 The the psychotically criminal Count Olaf. The Baudelaire children are put under the care of a new home. The children know very little about their new guardian, except for the fact that she is a widowed woman who lives atop a tall hill overlooking Lake Lacrimose, a lake so large that hurricanes are known to actually form on it. I know, Jess, you might have a little tidbit about that coming up later. I do, I do, and I'll cover that later whenever they t- start talking about that. I'll just say, maybe it's not as crazy as it sounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As the children pull up to their new home, they are shocked to find that this house is quite literally overlooking the lake, in that half the home is jutting out over the cliff's edge, precariously held aloft by a tangled series of stilts. Like, honestly, this picture stresses me out so much, the illustration of it. I will post it on our Instagram. It is a great summary of like my anxiety and like yeah. my mental health in general. Yeah. I would just show that to my therapist. Definitely an OSHA violation. Oh, yeah. It's an OSHA nightmare. <laughs> Inside, they meet their new guardian, Aunt Josephine Ann Whistle, which I feel like at this point I should say I should call her Aunt Josephine Ann Whistle. I think that's the correct pronunciation. I think so, too, but I'm from the South. Anyways, Aunt Josephine on Whistle, who is actually the children's second cousin's sister-in-law. 
Auntie J is kind but extremely paranoid, with nerves about as stable as the stilts she lives on. She keeps a string of cans along the door to alert her of burglars, doesn't use her stove out of fear of it catching on fire, and harbors an intense fear of realtors. <laughs> After our past experience with realtors, I don't blame her. I think it chalks this up as an irrational fear, but I mean, this was written before the 2008 economic collapse, which it was definitely in part caused by realtors. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's a bit, I think it's fairly rational. Yeah. Agreed. About the only thing she isn't afraid of is grammar, which she considers to be life's greatest joy. And I love, <laughs> she talks about her husband, right? And about how, how much she loved him. And she she refers to him as, what is it, like, partner in grammar? Or oh, oh, okay. She refers to him as, quote, my best friend and partner in grammar. <laughs> so that just goes to show. How insane she is. After a dinner of chilled cucumber soup, easily the saddest meal I've ever heard of. I mean, okay, that's fair, but I also do love how uh, Lemony Snicket describes food. It's like uh, one of my top favorite things to read about is like descriptions of food. Food is is just ripe for that kind of thing because it affects so many senses. So you're smelling it, you're tasting it, there's texture, it's got a look. So it's such a great like canvas for an author to work with and, and, and the, the better the author the better that's going to come out and when I think of like my earliest memory of books that I've read and I, I'm not kidding you um, what always comes to mind is reading Little House in the Big Woods mm. and um, Laura Ingalls Wilder her description of the pig's tail that they like cook and like blow up or whatever <laughs> but the way that she describes it it's like currently making my mouth water just thinking about it like it, it was it was one of the most like visceral reactions I'd ever had like while reading and I just like it it changed my little fourth grade mind that's why you're always eating pigtails yeah I always so. wondered where that came from <laughs> Uh, the the soup also reminds me of a different book. Uh, it reminds me of in in cold blood, the Truman Capote book, mm. true crime book, where it talks about it's it's a weird line that just sticks to me. And I don't know why, but it they talked this one guy is this really stern classic farmer type, mm -hmm. and he would didn't drink coffee, didn't drink alcohol, anything. Every morning he'd have a glass of milk and two apples. And, and it was described as so every morning he'd go out with a cold stomach, uh. and it just like. Why even be alive if every morning you drink a glass of milk, eat two apples, and then you go work a farm, and then you don't drink? He likes what he likes. But for what? <laughs> to, for what end? To, and then he gets murdered. Spoiler. <laughs> Anyways, Aunt Josephine shows the children her fully stocked library, much to Klaus's excitement. However, that excitement is quickly dashed when he learns that the library only contains books on grammar. And I'm like, how many books can there even be on grammar? Could you stock a library? If I mean, probably. If, if you really sought out that collection, I'm sure you could curate a large library of it, like that of that size. But... Uh. I Ugh. That would again, not be realistic. Again, why live? <laughs> Despite its lackluster collection, the room was beautiful to look at. Simple wooden bookshelves lined on one side of the oval-shaped, maybe eye-shaped, perhaps, mm. room, which were curved to fit along the wall, which, oh my god, I want that. I, I want a curved same. room with curved bookshelves. Yeah. With several comfy chairs seated in the center. But the room's most stunning feature was the large glass window looking out over the lake, which took up an entire wall of the library, which, of course, is the wide window mm -hmm. of which this book gets its name. Correct. That's, that's There that's is it. no wider window to come. I will tell you right now. <laughs> this is, is the widest the window, wide window we will encounter, I think, in the series. I'm going to say it right now. <laughs> We've peaked at window width today. <laughs> Aunt Josephine tells the children about how she used to love visiting the lake with her husband, Ike, until his unfortunate passing at the hands of the lacrimose leeches. <gasps> the leeches, she explained, were aggressive, carnivorous creatures that would attack anyone who had eaten within the last hour. Tragically, on one of their dates, Ike had gone swimming after only waiting 45 minutes. Josephine could barely stand to even look at the lake, but she refused to move due to her fear of realtors. Aunt Josephine reminds me of whenever I have, like, severe anxiety. 
<laughs> like, so just I can't drive. I'm going to die in a yeah. wreck. <laughs> I feel that. Also, how many people like have stopped listening because we say aunt instead of aunt? <laughs> the next two days for the Baudelaire's were a mixed bag, a phrase which here means that they were grateful to be safe from Count Olaf, but also incredibly bored with their life at their new home. Violet tinkered with the train set that Josephine had actually bought for Klaus, while Klaus would spend hours in the library forcing his way through books about grammar, and Sonny would bite the head of the doll that Aunt Jo had actually bought for Violet, because she doesn't understand any of them, <laughs> nor will she listen. No. All of them missed living with their Uncle Monty and his reptiles, in, but most of all, they missed their parents. It wasn't until the children told Aunt Josephine about the approaching Hurricane Herman that the children were able to leave the house at all. At all. Hurricane Herman is, of course, named after American hero Herman Cain, who valiantly fought against the tyranny of mass mandates <laughs> before bravely dying of COVID after attending a maskless rally. A uh, great story, but I do got one to top that. Hmm. So I thought the concept of having a hurricane on a lake was dubious at best. Uh, but there is actually a cyclone that occurred in 1996 on Lake Huron, which was technically a cyclone, but it they were people referred to it as Hurricane Huron, which fits in with Lemony Snicket's love of alliteration. I mean, it, that's got to be a connection, right? H like yeah. I mean, that's he's had to have heard that story. 1996. Yeah, that's like five years before. You know, before he started writing the series, right? So it's contemporary for yeah. him. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> like got to be connected. Yeah. I love it. I had I thought it was completely BS too. Well, I I I, I had to look it up because I was like immediately I was like hurricanes don't happen on lakes, and I was like, well, yeah. I thought it was. I didn't even think to look it up. Like I'm like, well, obviously <laughs> that's just silly. Yeah, no. It's like as silly as a a, a wide window. <laughs> exactly. Everyone knows windows are narrow. While in town gathering supplies for the storm, Aunt Josephine and the children meet a strange sailor named Captain Sham. I'm Captain Sham. And I will say, it's, I read the word sham like three different times before it clicked yeah, that it's it was a sham. sham. <laughs> Despite his eye patch and wooden peg leg, the Baudelaire children knew right away that Captain Sham was none other than Count Olaf. The children tried to warn Aunt Josephine, but she was too smitten by, Cham by Sham's charm to believe them. After dinner that night, Auntie Jo sends the kids to bed early so she can talk privately with Captain Sham. Though she didn't have to have the children pick up the phone for her because she was too afraid. <laughs> her husband would, would always be the one to pick up the phone before, but he had to like wear the special glove thing. <laughs> so they seemed like they had fun together. I'm sure. The children are awakened that night by the sound of shattering glass. Upon investigating, the children discover that the wide window had been broken. Nearby, they find a note left by Aunt Josephine, claiming that she committed suicide by throwing herself out the window. How symbolic of her. Yeah. And that Captain Sham is to be... I don't know why that's the Sham's voice for no, me. No, I think it's appropriate. Yeah. But Captain Sham is their new guardian. Curiously... The note was uncharacteristically filled with several grammatical errors. Most curious. Mm -hmm. The children call Mr. Poe to tell him what happened, and he arrives the next day. But, useless as always, Mr. Poe only confirms that Captain Sham is legally their new guardian. Poe calls Sham to inform him, and they agree to meet for lunch at the unfortunately named restaurant, The Anxious Clown. Needing time alone to come up with a plan, Violet hands her siblings peppermints, which Mr. Poe gave to her earlier, not realizing that all the Baudelaire's were allergic to them. Another point for super guardian Mr. Povid. Yeah. Also reminds me of when I got the flu in high school and my um, my girlfriend's mom convinced my mom to rub this like essential oil that was peppermint scented on my neck <laughs> to help me because she sold essential oils. Oh. And only thing it did was give me a rash where the oil was. Oh, no. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't love peppermint. 
the children immediately break out into hives and their tongues swell, which convinces Mr. Poe to allow them to return to Aunt Josephine's house. You know, instead of taking them to the hospital or just making sure they weren't about to, like, choke on their own tongues or something. Right. By the time they reached the house, Hurricane Herman Kane had already begun to come in. And I'm calling dibs right now on the band name Hurricane Herman Kane. Hurricane Herman Kane. Right. Dibs. I call it. Violet and Sunny take baking soda baths to treat their itchy skin, while Klaus goes to the library to figure out the meaning behind Aunt Josephine's note. Now, I thought also that baking soda baths were a bunch of baloney, but did you like that alliteration I just had Oh, there? a bunch of baloney. <laughs> baking soda baths are a bunch of baloney. That's great. But it's actually true. That one I did know. I, I did know that. <laughs> When the girls return, Klaus explains that each mistake revealed a letter spelling out the message Curdled Cave. I've always wanted secret messages like that. And you know what? Taylor Swift gives them to us. (laughs) That's why I find so much joy in that. Anyways. Where is she hiding? Uh, Where is she no, running no, no. from? No, no, no. She, whenever she like Who's releases after her? a new album, she always has like hidden mystery Easter eggs that we have to figure out. Like her rig bingo thing? Cor- correct. And the hazel. <laughs> the children search for a map leading to the cave, but just as they do, lightning strikes the supports holding up the house, causing it to fall into the lake. After narrowly escaping the house, the children rush down to the lake, but find that the local ferry is shut down. They decide to steal Captain Sham's sailboat instead, but find that the keys are in the hands of Olaf's henchperson of indeterminate gender, who was sleeping in a hut dressed as a security card. I just love the phrase henchperson. Uh, yeah, no, same. <laughs> just fun to say. It is. Fun to say, fun to type. Sunny is able to sneak in and steal the keys from the hench person, and the children take off to find their Aunt Josephine. Miraculously, the children are able to figure out how to sail through a hurricane and find <laughs> Aunt Josephine hiding out in Curled Cave. There's a really cute image that shows, like, Violet holding, like, the sail rope, and mm-hmm. then, like, Sunny with the rudder, it, rudder mm-hmm. in the back. <laughs> and then Klaus is just reading. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think he's looking at a map, but it looks like he's just reading. Right. Which would be my role. So the children find Aunt Josephine in the curdled cave, and she tells them that Olaf had forced her to write the note, but she managed to fake her own death and get away. The children try to get Aunt Josephine to come back with them, but she refuses, at least until Klaus tells her that the cave was for sale. I wrote the wrong sale. That's funny of me. (laughs) I wrote sale like a boat. I didn't even mean to do that. I didn't even notice. That's funny. Until Klaus tells her that the cave was for sale, meaning it would soon be visited by realtors. Now that is just top tier comedy. I'm going to tell you right now. That made me laugh. When out loud. when class does that? Yes. Yeah, no, that's excellent. <laughs> Very clever. The children and Josephine sail back towards the harbor, but as they reach the middle of the lake, their boat is attacked by a swarm of lacrimose leeches. Why why would this happen? They haven't eaten. Aunt Josephine has failed to inform the children that she had eaten a banana. Right before they arrived. Why does every adult, without fail, just suck so hard in this story? Because it would ruin the plot otherwise. Well, babe, you know, sometimes I think you got too much education. (laughs) You dumb it down. All right, all right. They soon start to sink as the leeches eat away at the boat. But Violet is able to fashion a makeshift signal flare to call for help. Yeah, this is one of her most impressive inventions. I do got to say. She, like, creates yeah. a fire, but then uses light and mirrors to refract it to, like, shoot it through the cloudy sky. It's wild. Guarantee you I would have died. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have. I, I was briefly, weirdly, on the sail team at our college <laughs> oh, yeah. for, like, a couple months. And I went to, like, six or seven meetings, and I couldn't do anything with the sailboat. <laughs> and they just picked it up and just just went. No, no, I would be dead instantly. I would, I wouldn't have gone in the lake. I would have died in the house. Yeah. Anyways, the signal works as they catch the attention of the only other ship out in the lake. Unfortunately, that ship contained Count Olaf. Womp womp. Olaf allows all of them onto his boat, but threatens to kill Aunt Josephine for deceiving him with her fake death. Josephine pleads for her life, promising to go into hiding and and even offering to let Olaf just have the kids along with their fortune. Awful. Olaf does briefly consider this, but when she corrects his grammar, he just goes ahead and shoves her right off the side of the boat, and I can't say I blame him. Honestly. 
Olaf sails away, leaving Aunt Josephine to struggle helplessly against the swarm of vicious leeches. Just like her precious Ike. Mm. Olaf and the children sail back to the dock to meet with Mr. Poe so he can officially place the Baudelaire's under Captain Sham's care. But just as Poe is about to give away the children to a virtual stranger... Again. (laughs) Sonny lunges and bites Sham's wooden leg. The wood snaps in half, revealing a bare leg underneath, featuring a tattoo of an eye just above the ankle. I know that tattoo. Poe moves to apprehend Olaf, but as you probably guessed, Olaf manages to escape, and the Baudelaire children are left once again without a guardian to care for them. They were this close. They Ah. almost had it. But we do have a letter to the editor. Mm. Close up the book. Snicket writes to his editor from a small town known as Paltryville, where he is investigating an optometrist known as Dr. Orwell. Mm. He instructs the editor to break into a seemingly abandoned black jeep, where he will find notes on hypnosis, a surgical mask, 68, almost nice, pieces of chewing gum, and a manuscript titled... The Miserable Mill. I'm very excited about this because I have no idea what's going to come. I'm excited for you, too, because this is where it starts getting a little more. Actually, it's probably the fifth one where it really starts getting complicated and there's like more of an outer plot. But here's where we start breaking the cycle of like the first three books. So this would be like Prisoner of Azkaban level. Yeah. Whereas like the first and second Harry Potter are kind of like the same-ish plot with different characters. Mm Mm-hmm. Azkaban brings in some new elements. That's we're starting to get here with this one. Or at least things are changing up. Heck yeah. So now that we know what happened, it's time to discuss our personal proclivities from this week's story. And in the spirit of Lemony Snicket, we'll be covering our 13 unfortunate facts, faves, and findings. So we begin with number one, as is common to do. Yeah. Snicket, what I really love about him is how he plays up and exaggerates like these kind of tropes of childhood and these like typical things. Mm-hmm. And and this book I think is the best where Aunt Josephine is kind of like a caricature of a of your like English teacher who just cares about grammar and right. there's no fun in reading. It's all about the rules. And then and and then of course the best one is is like taking the adage of you have to wait an hour after eating to go swimming right. and turning that into like <laughs> like a true nightmare and that's such a fun like move from him and I love how he plays with childhood and these like tropes and these kind of common knowledge things and that everyone's gone through and makes them into this kind of spooky macabre uh, world no I absolutely love that yeah I think we're due now for uh, something tragic to happen to someone who doesn't like look both ways before crossing the road (laughs) seems like we're leading to (laughs) So number two, uh, when Violet asks Mr. Poe, well, what does that word mean? And Poe thinks she's referring to the word taxi when she's referring to the word dowager. It reminds me a lot of like Doctor Who, where the doctor will often answer a question, but he's not answering the one that you think he is. Oh, yeah. I feel like that happens a lot. And so that kind of just reminded me of it. I really like that. For number three, we learn through Aunt Josephine's sexy nighttime call with Olaf that <laughs> Olaf has chosen for his alias the full name Captain Julio Sham. I mean, there's not a lot of nice things you can say about Olaf. In fact, there's really only one, and it's that that was an excellent choice. I love that his name was Julio. Julio Sham. He's like, I got to tell him I'm being deceitful in the name, but I want to be sexy. <laughs> All right, number four. Two words. Brobdignagian and phantasmagorical. Three words? No. You said and. Well, yes, but (laughs) these are insane words. It it just took, like, Lemony Snicket just took how he normally, like, says a a word that, you know, maybe children don't know and explains it. And, like, up until this point, I knew all the words. He just, like, went above and beyond, and it just made me laugh. Now, I swear he's got, like, a spooky encyclopedia, because, like, I don't know where he's getting these words. Like, I've I've never in my whole life. Yeah. He's excellent with the wordplay and finding these big words, and, yeah, he doesn't dumb it down for the audience. That just makes it exciting, and it's the perfect way for kids to learn big words like this. Yeah. It's a fun environment that's not pandering. Number five, Aunt Jo has a great moment where she is talking about her husband, Ike, and she says that she hopes, quote, that he's somewhere very, very hot wherever he is, <laughs> which is that made me laugh out loud. Oh, 
I'm sure he is if he loved grammar as much as she did. Number six, Violet gets annoyed with Klaus obsessing over Josephine's note, and they have a surprisingly sassy exchange. That's another error in the note, Klaus says. It doesn't say unbearable with a U, it says unbearable with an I. You're being unbearable with a U, Violet cried. And you're being stupid with an S, Klaus snapped. Oh, Got him. It was good. They like immediately apologized. No, they're very sweet. I really liked that. They're very sweet with each other, but that was like, dang. (laughs) You're being unbearable with the U. I'm using that one. Yeah. Number seven, while is an unfortunate library in in its collection, we do get some great names for Aunt Josephine's library. We start out with basic rules of grammar and punctuation, Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. but... Hand, we also have Handbook for Advanced Apostrophe Use, which, <laughs> honestly, I would love that. Yeah. I want to know how far this goes. I know. <laughs> and then, finally, the correct spelling of every English word that ever, ever existed. I wonder how large that book is. It's got to be a lot of book. It's got to be a lot of book in there. <gasps> I love all of these little details that Lemony Snicker, the author. <laughs> Lemony Snicker. Lemony Snacket puts in the books yeah no you didn't have to put those names in but it really adds to the atmosphere it's so fun definitely number eight the anxious clown restaurant like l o l i really like their their tagline where everybody has a good time whether they like it or not that's such an honest tagline for like Chuck E. Cheese or yeah. like even Disney World or like you have to enjoy it. You have to say you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's just outrageous. I loved it. Number nine, right before biting Olaf's fake peg leg, Snicket writes, It may surprise you to learn that at this moment, Sonny resembled the famous Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great. <laughs> and I have to admit, Jess, it did surprise me. I mean, yeah. Same. I wasn't expecting her to resemble the Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great. I wholeheartedly enjoyed that paragraph. (laughs) What was in that paragraph? Well, you have to read the book to find out, nerd. Yeah. Number 10. When the children's tongues swell from the peppermints, we get several pages of them only being able to say blah. The best line being where Klaus starts a sentence with blacuz. (laughs) I was cracking up reading that part. Uh, It's so dumb. Yeah. Number 11, after Aunt Jo smashes the wide window, the hurricane soaks her entire library, leading to the all-time great line, there are few things sadder than a ruined book. Amen. I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest. (laughs) And uh, number 12, I really enjoyed Snicket's quote at the start of chapter three. It's something I always thought as a kid. There's a way of looking at life called keeping things in perspective. This simply means making yourself feel better by comparing the things that are happening to you right now against other things that have happened at a different time or to different people. You can see at once why keeping things in perspective rarely works well, because it is hard to concentrate on somebody else being eaten by a bear when you are staring at your own ugly pimple. I always loved that, and it kind of reminds me of something that I often say now, because my students like if I'm getting onto one person they might be like well so-and-so is doing blah 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 and I'm like or or if someone's upset and they're like I shouldn't be feeling this way because this other person had this really more awful thing happen to them Mm -hmm. but I'm always like just because someone else is in more pain than you doesn't mean that your pain isn't valid and along the same lines like just because they did something worse than you doesn't mean that like what you did wasn't bad Right, no, and, and yeah, it's one of the, it's one of those lessons you just have to learn as a kid. But also, it's one of those things that adults just say at you that you know they don't even believe. Yeah, exactly. And you like, I like, like that star- never works. Like, finish your food. There's starving kids in Africa. I'm like, well, this food won't get to them. Yeah. There's a lot of systemic issues, mom, for why my mom never said that to me. But there's a lot of <laughs> systemic issues of why people live in abject poverty, mom. So like, me not finishing this casserole, which was overcooked. <laughs> Again, this is not actually quoting my real mother. I love you, and your cooking's fine. You're too hard on yourself about your cooking. <laughs> Anyways, finally, for spooky number 13. Ooh. That's the, that's the only way I can be spooky. So 13, we close out with my favorite part, the literary allusions and references. <laughs> so the children arrive 
so the children first arrive on Damocles Dock, which is a reference to the ancient Greek story of the Sword of Damocles. If you guys don't know, Damocles was like a poor beggar, and he's able to switch places for a day with a, either a king or Dionysus, who is a king, you know, it depends. Mm. But he finds that when he sits on the throne, that above the throne, a sword is held up right above where he is by a single hair, and that is you know, supposed to show, like, the pressures of being in charge of having power and, like, there's always people out to get you and it's not as good as it seems. Ah. And in the book, you actually see there's an illustration of the ki- the children on the dock and the dock is, like, decorated with a sword that is hanging above them. Ah. You know, the weight of them having to basically take care of themselves because every adult is useless. So Hurricane Herman Cain is not actually uh, a reference to Herman Cain, most likely, but probably... A reference to Moby Dick author Herman Melville. That would make sense. And I believe the show kind of plays up the Moby Dick connection a lot more. Mm. That makes sense. Water, Moby Dick. But now that there's that real hurricane on Lake Huron, that kind of all works out. Yeah. I don't know. That seems like that's where he got it from more than anything. In the Reptile Room endnotes, Nickett mentions Kafka Cafe, which is a great name, uh, but is a reference to author Franz Kafka. And one of Kafka's short stories is titled Josephine the Singer, ah. uh, which features a singing mouse named Josephine. Okay. And so Aunt Jo's name likely represents her being, you know, as timid as a mouse. Right. But also in Kafka's story, in Kafka's story, the mouse's singing is is said to sound like whistling when it's heard at a certain angle. Mm. And so then you take Isaac and Whistle, Josephine's late husband who is noted to be able to sing with the mouthful or to whistle with the mouthful of crackers. Ah. And then you take his nickname, which is Ike, Ike and whistle. I, I can, can whistle. whistle. Snicket, <laughs> you dirty dog. Wow. That's good. Thanks babe for that. And that concludes. Nope. Doesn't actually bonus, <laughs> bonus literary reference. This is a weird hole I fell into. So while researching for this piece, I stumbled on an academic paper titled The Aunt Josephine Paradox. (laughs) So I was like, got to learn more about this. Yeah. I wasn't able to read the full article because it was it's an actual scholarly journal and I couldn't figure out how to get access to it. But it is basically explores author James Joyce and his impact on uh, same sex marriage laws in Ireland, which sounds actually very interesting. But the paradox comes from Joyce sending a copy of his seminal novel Ulysses to his actual Aunt Josephine, who distinctly did not like it, <laughs> which was devastating for Joyce because in his mind, he was finally writing like a commercial wide appeal book he was he was like i'm finally doing stephen king now i'm just making one for the fans and anyone who knows anything about ulysses will understand how funny that is because (laughs) it is not that it is it is infinite jest it is irish infinite jest it is like purposely obtuse it is so the paradox i believe is supposed to be like the more he tries to become a commercial author the weirder the man gets oh i see Um, so it's just not working for him and his aunt josephine is like his big critic fan and she just didn't like his work Fittingly, Snicket's Aunt Josephine would have likely hated James Joyce's writing as well, not just because it's insane, but also because he famously disliked punctuation. What? Especially inverted commas, which we call quotation marks, which he called perverted commas. What? How do you know people are speaking? That's the thing. He thinks it ruins it if you just know. He thinks you're supposed to interpret it. His whole thing is about, like, not... You just you don't know. That's the worst That's like thing, his whole I've thing. Ever heard. No, it sounds like a nightmare. I have this short story collection of James Joyce and the um the introduction mm-hmm. by some author scholar. He like has this whole thing about why it's so interesting that they don't have quotation marks and he's like, Here's how he like tips on like how to read it. This is how it kind of flows and you can kind of and then I read all this and at the end there's just like a little note at the bottom he says, I've been informed that this edition does in fact include quotation marks, but I'm gonna leave my piece as is. <laughs> I imagine he already submitted it. He's like, Well that's that. I'm not changing it. Yeah, no, I would do the same thing. <laughs> all right. Well, now that we're done talking about all the dumb stuff we liked in the book, it's time to get deep. Ooh, how deep? Very deep. <laughs> As we room room travel down the road to pretension. That's right, it's time to take a journey down the road to pretension as we take a deeper look at this week's story to try to figure out what makes it so diddly dang good, y'all. 
And this week, we'll be discussing the thrilling, exciting world of grammar, is what I would be saying, except that I became so overwhelmed with the breadth and depth of the subject of grammar, and in all honesty, incredibly bored, <laughs> that I decided to change it. Okay, so there we go. My apologies to Aunt Josephine and my your welcomes to everyone else, as I will not be doing grammar this week. Also, because I can't spell grammar, I keep wanting to spell it with an E. Interesting. I don't know why I do that. I guess because I say grammar, I don't say grammar. I do in my head. Interesting. Well, anyways, I'm not going to be talking about that. What I will be talking about this week is the moral of the story. As I'm sure I've said before, and I will likely say many more times, all writing, regardless of its subject or quality, is an expression of empathy. That's the beauty of writing. It's one person's attempt to convey a feeling or an idea so that someone else may better understand it, even that it's a bad idea or, you know, they didn't do a good job at it. Mm -hmm. But at the core of this is a story's moral, which is the lesson or the message that the reader is supposed to come away with, the point of the story. And, you know, how simple and obvious a story's moral is really depends on the type of story being told. When you hear more of the story, you probably think of children's books because they are going to contain very clear, straightforward morals, you know, like simple universal truths like be kind, don't judge others, never become a Cleveland Browns fan, common sense things like that. Children's stories most often come in the form of fables, which are stories featuring either mythological or anthropomorphized creatures and objects that are able to help children, you know, all stay interested, but also help them learn and understand these important life lessons that keep our society from descending into total chaos. Barely. Mm. These kinds of stories have almost certainly existed as long as humans have been communicating, but we can definitely trace fables specifically as far back as ancient Greece with the famous collection of stories known as Aesop's Fables, which I didn't even realize were that old. I thought they were like medieval, but yeah, they Yeah, I didn't antiquity. realize they were from antiquity. That's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And so while there are actual records of Aesop being mentioned by Plato and even Greek historian and podcast famous Herodotus, Herodotus, he likely wasn't a real person. Oh, bummer. Or, or at least he wasn't the one who like wrote all these. Okay. And honestly, I I'm I kind of hope he didn't exist because the descriptions of him are some of the most devastating things I've ever heard. Like what? So one source describes him as quote of loathsome aspect, which Ooh. great of loathsome aspect, pot-bellied, misshapen <gasps> of head, snub-nosed, swarthy, dwarfish, bandy-legged, short-armed, squint-eyed, liver-lipped. No. A portentous monstrosity. There's no way that man existed. <laughs> no, there's too many things. There's too yeah, many features. No one exactly, has that many features. Exactly. Uh, another uh, more succinct description describes him as a faulty creation of Prometheus when half asleep. <laughs> <gasps> that's that's just rude. So I hope he wasn't real because he sounds like a monster. That poor man. Yeah. <laughs> So, regardless of their origin, though, many of Aesop's stories are still used and told to this day, which is a testament to their power and their importance. So, from Aesop, we get the earliest known versions of the tortoise and the hare, mm. fox and the grapes, um, the ant and the grasshopper, and so on with, like, he's got, like, six to seven hundred stories credited to him in his fables. Oh, my. And I did take the time to go through them, and uh, I found a few less popular titles that really caught my eye. Okay. So, from Aesop's fables, we also get The Horse That Lost Its Liberty. Love. Where'd the liberty go? The Ass Carrying an Image. <laughs> and a personal favorite, The Astrologer Who Fell Into a Well. Get him out of there. He was too busy looking at the sky, I bet. <laughs> Probably. And then one that specifically wasn't credited to Aesop, but was too good not to mention, was an ass eating thistles. <gasps> and I want to point out we can say ass if we are actually talking about a donkey. Correct. Which we are. So while talking animals dispensing life lessons are by no means exclusive to children's stories, you know, take... George Orwell's Animal Farm, for example, mm -hmm. moralistic stories aimed at adults tend to come in the form of either a parable or an allegory. 
And so the two terms are kind of similar and you can mostly use them interchangeably, but there is a difference. So parables, like fables, place a greater emphasis on their core message than their storytelling. They're, you know, more kind of lessony, which and but they feature human characters instead of talking animals and objects and with limited like magic. So parables often but not always come in the form of religious stories. Fact researching this, I found that parable.com is a Christian book and merch store. Oh, interesting. So. Go visit parable.com. Tell them we sent you. But there are plenty of non-religious examples like, you know, the emperor's new clothes or mm. the boy who cried wolf, which is, you know, also technically one of Aesop's fables. So they kind of all bleed together. Yeah. But uh, allegories typically have more of a nuanced and complicated storytelling structure, but they rely on symbolism to convey like a hidden meaning. So you can think of it as like an extended metaphor or a story that's about an idea. So in school, you may have read Plato's Allegory of the Cave or Dante's Inferno. More modern examples would be like the Chronicles of Narnia, which is an allegory for Christianity and Christian faith. Fahrenheit 451, which is an allegory for censorship. Mm. Or The Lord of the Flies, which is an allegory for bad writing and how British people are just scared of tropical islands. But morality tales like fables and parables are so ubiquitous that we tend to forget how integral they are to how we see the world. They really form the bedrock of our entire culture. They mend and enrich the way that we see each other and ourselves, even and especially when we don't realize it. And so much of what we love about uh, a series of unfortunate events is how it kind of resists and subverts these kinds of storytelling techniques that we're used to. And Stickett actually pokes fun at the idea of stories, especially children's stories, having simplistic, ineffectual morals in this book. To quote, but even if they could go home, it would be difficult for me to tell you what the moral of the story is. In some stories, it's easy. The moral of the three bears, for instance, is never break into someone else's house. The moral of Snow White is never eat apples. The moral of World War I is never assassinate Archduke Ferdinand. <laughs> but Violet, Klaus, and Sonny sat on the dock and watched the sun come up over Lake Lacrimose and wondered exactly what the moral of their time with Aunt... Exactly and wondered exactly what the moral of their time with Aunt Josephine was. So the Baudelaire's ultimately decide that the moral of their time with Aunt Josephine was that no matter what, they had each other. But even Snicket himself questions that conclusion. I'm not sure that the Baudelaire's had each other is the moral of the story, but to the three siblings, it was enough. That's sweet. And so I think, I think Snicket is so skeptical, or at least takes the time to point out his skepticism here, because it, it isn't actually the moral of this story, or not of this book. The boulders always having each other is true, but it's not specific to the wide window. And so I want to find out the moral of this specific book. And to find to figure that out, I want you got to look at the changing variable in the variable in this story, which is the children's guardian. And so Aunt Josephine's defining characteristic is, of course, fear. She's afraid of virtually everything except for grammar and cucumbers. <laughs> but that's not her greatest flaw, or, like, not exactly. It, Snicket has never described the Baudelaire's as fearless. He often points out how afraid they are, actually. But he says that without judgment, because being afraid is, is completely natural. Being afraid doesn't mean you're not also brave or noble. It's how you react to your fears that actually defines your character. And therein lies Josephine's actual true flaw, letting her fear control her. Both the Baudelaire's and Aunt Josephine had been through very real and very painful trauma, which is what makes her character contrast so well with the children. Josephine is kind of being used by Snicket to show us the wrong way to approach fear, trauma, and suffering. And as Snicket puts it, the Baudelaire's had not really enjoyed most of their time with her, not because she cooked horrible cold meals, or chose presents for them that they didn't like, or always corrected the children's grammar, but because she was so afraid of everything that she made it impossible to really enjoy anything at all. And the worst of it was, Aunt Josephine's fear had made her a bad guardian. Mm. The moral of Aunt Josephine's story, I think, is perfectly symbolized by her, feel, by her fear of realtors. A representation, a representation of change, moving on, starting over. All things Aunt Josephine was unable to do after her husband died. Things she couldn't do because what she was actually afraid of was a word suspiciously similar to realtor. Reality. 
Josephine was afraid of reality itself, something the Baudelaire children have never been, despite having every reason to be. And that's the moral of this story, and an excellent example of what stories can teach us. Wow, well done, babe. Thank you. Well done. Yeah. I really liked that. Thanks. Um, I was kind of wondering where you're going, but that's good. Yeah. No, uh, again, it's just how Snicket really takes the kind of formalities and the kind of normal trends and like yeah. things we're used to with children's stories, but upends them and I think really progresses them for an older audience in a very mature and a very creative way that makes it so good. We just love these books so much. I, I love these books so dang much. They're but, always good. But that's enough. I'm okay. done. I'm back. I'm putting my hands up. I'm All putting right. my hands up. All right. Let's exit off this road of pretension and pull up to the YA information station where Jess will use her advanced librarian and training skills to give us some insight into the into this story and the wider world of YA. All right, y'all. Um, so I today I don't plan on taking up too much of your time. But I decided that I would be talking about Band Book Week for this episode, mainly because Band Book Week was actually last week. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, it's like at the end of September is where it happens. So Band Book Week has been happening for, I think, the last 40 years. This was their 40th year kind of anniversary deal happening um and i believe it was first kind of established by the american library association and uh what it is meant to do is highlight the books that have been banned or censored or basically dubbed books that children shouldn't have access to or read and when we think about libraries a big tenet of librarianship and 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 having this place of information that people can go to is the right to read so like a library even if it's in a school it's still a place where people have to like volunteer to go to right it is a place that you have to actively seek information and so if we keep books and information out of there for reasons such as like I don't want my child reading about like gay people or uh, whatever insert insert thing here uh, you're basically just withholding information from like young minds which or not even young minds but from minds in general mm-hmm. you know which uh, ethically not great right Right. Yeah. I mean, the obvious everyone always jumps to Fahrenheit 451, which is like leading where every book is banned. And so no one had ideas. No one came up with anything because the library contains all the knowledge that's outside of like the bare strict curriculum you're forced to look at and forced exactly. to ingest. Exactly. As a student. Yeah. A lot of the information that I got is from pen.org, which is a website about Pen America. And it's all about like advocacy for this so like banned books and things like that and they get they have a lot of good information that links to a lot of good websites like literally just go to their faq section if you want to learn anything else that i'm talking about yeah i would love that um because we see banned book week and it's we've kind of talked about this uh, i'm sorry to interrupt but like it's almost become like a gimmick for barnes and noble and like just libraries to just kind of throw out you know, a, a stand with Catcher in the Rye and Great Gatsby and all these books. And I'm like, can yeah, you believe these were banned? Yeah, it's like more marketing right. based versus like... It's like Labor Day sales at mattress stores. I- exactly. Like missing the point. The, the point though is to inform people that this is not a good thing. Banning books is not helpful to anybody. Well, and that's why I don't like when they do it with like these books where we, it's so silly that they were banned because... It specifically misses the point that none of this is guaranteed. Access and the freedom we have to knowledge is not just always, not necessarily always going to be there. We it's no, something it's we something have to, we fight, have to for. fight for. We have to yeah. advocate for exactly con- constantly and consistently. And that's why it's dumb to ban like classics like Catcher in the Rye, but it's just as bad to ban like YA novels about anything you know whatever the reason is yeah lgbtq right or race but just because it's just some even it's a bad book if it's just some dumb shitty book or some dumb poorly written book someone just spat out and you're banning it like we shouldn't ban 50 shades of gray no matter how poorly written it is because that the point is that 
the right to choose and the right to advocate for yourself is what matters. Exactly. And that's why I like that you're covering this because I feel like people are losing that with the banned book week movement. Yes. And, and I think that was well put. Um, so I'll get, I'll come back on the purpose of why it's important not to ban books, but I did kind of want to dip into kind of the history and where we are today regarding that. So let's look back. Okay. So right now we are kind of in a new, um, you said look back, look at, look at what? Oh, sorry. For everyone at home, I looked behind me in the room that were physically looked behind me. That was a really funny bit I did. Yeah, babe, I hope you enjoy editing that. I won't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I felt like that was too mean. I just no, not at all. A little hand hug. No. Currently, we're in the midst of a uptick, like a rise in the challenging uh, and banning of books. A banned um, book renaissance, one might say. If you will, yes. Um, and so... When thinking about this, it's often good to kind of look in the past. So we can kind of compare what's happening today to two different um, peaks of banning books that happened in the past. And the first one being like... In Wait, the... are you saying that history is repeating itself? I'm not saying that explicitly, but... Jess, I have on good authority that you can't repeat the past. Well, <laughs> let's, let's find out. Okay, so one of these eras is back in McCarthyism. So mm. during, you know, the Red Scare and all that jazz. So this Crucible. Is like, uh, right. So this was, you know, back in the Cold War. And this movement was Burr. mostly focused on textbooks. And it involved, like, the federal and the state governments at different levels. So mm -hmm. it was slightly different from how it is now, where it's mostly, like, a movement of individual citizens rather than... It's much more grassroots now. And But during the Cold, Cold War, McCarthyism era, it, it was much more... Government, government censorship. Government censor. yeah. yeah, exactly. And it yeah. was this massive campaign uh, that was meant to censor quote unquote subversive art mm. which I really like that they word it subversive art because it makes me think currently in my own district a big restriction for books is being quote unquote perversively obscene or like mm. uh, sexual or whatever but they right. use the word perversively because then makes... you can spin it to anything exactly and so they were doing the same thing back then with this word subversive and so it was any art. It was like books, films, like videos, pictures, any type of art. Like that was fair game. I don't see a problem because, as we all know, the best kind of art is conformative, you know, <laughs> you know, hold the line, straightforward art. That's, right. that's what's that's right. the best art. Well, so at that time, the focus was mainly on like anti-communism and yeah. like racism. Right. Wait, are you saying you're pro-communism, baby? I'm not saying I'm not. Uh, you should say you're not. No, uh, I, I don't agree with communism as it is practiced today. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we're not going to get into that. No, no. Let's it's just not... say I'm not a commie. Yeah. Okay. I do appreciate democracy. So it was mainly focused on those kinds of things. Now, another era where we saw this like uptick in mm, I think censorship. I know which it's going to be is going to be in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. This the, uh, so the satanic panic. panic. Yeah, rock and um, roll, man. All that vibe. That's so actually, stuff is real. In the 80s, it's a lot more similar to how it is now mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, you get all like the parents that are concerned with, quote unquote, parental rights. Right. Yeah. This is where you get all of this is where you get D. Snyder in a congressional hearing talking about his songs that he's writing and all this other jazz. So so this is kind of telling off Tipper Gore. Right. Exactly. I like to tip her over a, a ledge <laughs> into the Lake Lacrimose. Yeah. Tipper Gore. Too bad. It's such a catchy name. It's a great name. Oh, Tipper Gore. Bothers That's me. a lovely name for an awful woman. Yeah. And I like Al. Yeah. He invented the Internet. He did. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Thank you, Uncle Al. Because, yeah, we kind of just swapped Satanic Panic for, like, QAnon for, like, all the what, whatever we call it now. What is the, the hot button one? The racial. Oh, critical race theory. Yeah, like, they just swapped Correct. those out. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Um, so the focus there, obviously, was on, like, explicit Satan, stuff. Satan, you know, Satan. whatever. But also, 
in, in terms of books, like anti-racism, anti-patriotism was a big thing there, gender roles, sexuality. And this article that was linked in this pen.org uh, FAQ section, they had a really great quote, um, and it's, the 1980s boogeyman was secular humanism. Ooh, oh, you and I love some secular humanism. I know, yeah, we do. Um, it's cool. It's all the cool hip stuff. It's, it's all like, the cool. It's all the exactly. groovy chicks are into this. That's yeah. the thing. It's like it's the sexy stuff. Yeah. Are they you trying want... to get laid or not? Yeah, honestly, I'm just kidding. That's not the purpose of reading books. No, but like you know, if you bring a witchy girl over, you put some of those cool books out and some candles. Like you know, <laughs> if you if you want to get a witchy girl. You gotta have like Anton LaVey, you know, books out there and some crystals and stuff. Exactly. Especially back in the day. <laughs> um, so now let's take it back to where it is today. So if we compare that to now, today the focus is rooted in political movements, especially regarding like COVID nineteen and critical race theory. There's controversy with COVID nineteen? Yes. Oh. Yes. Oh. So just like we've seen an uptick in like parents attending with school board meetings and stuff about mask mandates and all this stuff. We're also seeing that in regards to books available in school libraries and classroom libraries. Yeah, and a lot of this is also like an update on like video games are causing violence or this is causing whatever, you know. It's just always they just find a new thing. The internet, I mean, the internet's probably is ruining us, but, you know, still, it's not. Exactly. Parents aren't helping. And I will say that Penn.org, like the Penn America, they have been collecting data for I think the last three years is when they realize like, oh, we need to start collecting data on how often books are being like banned or or, or, like challenged and things like that. Um, And of the last three years that they've been collecting data, this year has had like the highest amount of incidences of book challenges in schools. And it's something that I'm seeing currently as well. And it's a big issue regarding, you know, democracy in general. Well, it hasn't... Didn't or hasn't your your school district banned John Green's Looking for Alaska, an often challenged book? Um, I don't know that they've banned it. I don't think they've banned it, but I'm sure it has been challenged. Yeah, it's either that or it's a series of unfortunate events. I remember we we were looking at one book that was connected to your school, but it's happening to your school district, like, you know, that you right. are trying to be a librarian. I, and, like, I recently had to go to a meeting and where all of the teachers, we have to, if we have books in our classroom, we have to go through a process to get them approved. Which um, that doesn't sound like a totalitarian yeah, state. Yeah, not at all. That doesn't sound like a nightmare hellscape, but yeah. Right. And so I, I do want to point out this one thing. So in our home state of Texas, mm-hmm. Republican Yeehaw. State Representative Ma- Matt Krause sent a letter along with a list of 150 books to several school districts in Texas requesting that they notify that they respond stating whether these books are present in their libraries or school li- or, or classroom libraries. There's no way that man has read 150 books in his life. No, and I literally looked at this list and I guarantee you he went to someone and said, "Hey, can you pull me up a a, li- a book of a list of books that are about gays?" <laughs> and race. Yep. So you get things on here that like Will Grayson, Will Grayson, or even which this is, is not. I've read it's not explicit at all. It no, just it's has not. a gay character. It just has it. a gay character exactly. Which I was kind of surprised to see that. Well, not really, but and then it also involve. There's a lot of gay stuff. Babe, we're not looking through your search history. No, I know, I know, <laughs> but it's just like a top. Top 250 LGBTQ <laughs> books for teens. Yeah. Um, and things like that. But then also I saw that they have, um, what is it, Margaret Atwood's graphic novel version of the Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale. The Handmaid's yeah. Tale. Yeah. That, I've never read that one, but I thought that was uh, yeah. an interesting thing I haven't read see. the graphic novel. I've read the book. But, like, obviously the point isn't that they're banning because it's graphic because it's. Because the whole argument of, like, books being too graphic for kids is so stupid in the age of iPhones. Yeah. Because you know what your kids can get at any point. And there's also, like, A Woman's Right to an Abortion, Roe v. Wade. Like, that book was also on this list. And so uh, this isn't him asking for a challenge on those books, Mm -hmm. but it is, like, a 
like a, a soft move. challenge. Yeah, it's like a move saying like, "Hey, do you have these?" But I, I don't know. It's something's fishy. He's with trying to it, get people you know? on lists. He's trying to gather some data exactly. so he can point I, some fingers. I, it was definitely like a political move a to stunt. get attention yeah. for sure. But lately, there are tons of groups, like Facebook groups, that have this kind of common cause to control and limit the types of books that are available to children. And some of them are making explicit calls to exclude materials that touch on race and LGBTQ plus themes. Overall, they they have like this list of books that they'll post in these websites or these chat rooms and say, hey, like go to your local board meeting and you know make a big fuss about these particular books and things like that so we're we're seeing that a lot now and I know there's a lot of good information available again if you want to look this up I think it's a really important topic not just in the world of library but no in general everything it is very Um, important see the important thing even if like you don't agree that students or children should be reading about critical race theory or LGBTQ+. It's important to have these different type of books and types of authors and types of stories available for children and students to read because books offer you a view into the world around you, right? And so if you're not letting them access this information, then they're going to be living closed off lives. And these are like the next generation. These are the people that are going to be in charge when we're old and can't do anything. Um, And so it's so, so important that they have access to all of this information and that we're not banning books because Another thing that comes into play with all of these challenges, even if the school districts agree with the concept of right to read, but there's also an issue of self-censorship as well, Mm -hmm. which is what occurs whenever librarians are choosing books to have in their library. So whenever we're purchasing books, we might consider, do we want to have this title? Will it cause a parent to be upset? And in doing that, we are censoring. And so it it might not be something... It's fear-mongering. It's terrorism. Exactly. And it might not be something that librarians are doing, like, cognizantly. Yeah. But it is affecting the choices that we make and the materials that are available to students. Well, that's exactly what that guy was doing. He was pointing out so that people can he can create a list of people who have these books so that people know where they can shoot their anger at. Exactly. It's all fear-mongering. It is. It's it garbage. is. Um, and so you can consider this all, like, within this greater movement that we see a lot with the Republican Party these days. Well, there's definitely, like, a, a strong anti-intellectualism movement. Yes, absolutely. And, Which and the the left is not doing a great job of quashing because it, we tend to, uh, I literally have a segment called Road to Pretension. We kind of like doing that. So yeah. I, I do see it on some level. No, and, and that's a fair point to make as well. And I just think it, we're just kind of repeating ourselves again with that's the satanic the panic yeah. and McCarthyism, which is something that, you know, like we learned in school and now we are seeing it happen in real time. Like, it's so dumb because it's it's dumb because we're repeating it. It's dumb because this stuff doesn't work. Tipper Gore got the parent warning logos on the albums. You know what it did? Increase those album sales because everyone knew which ones are cool. Uh, uh, I, well, I tried to read. I watched Train Spotting or like I've read plenty of books about people using drugs. The only book that ever made me want to do drugs was Go Ask Alice. <laughs> the one that was that was not subversive. The, no. The mainstream book, the like straight and narrow book that was the one that made me want to do drugs because they don't get it because they don't actually understand anything they're talking about that's what's so frustrating none of this actually works you're not ever ever helping anything with this it's like the banning of trench coats you know yeah the Uh, trench coats weren't the problem guys no they weren't the problem and also anti-bullying bullying wasn't the problem either these guys are psychopaths the problem was they had grown but we're not getting into that one we're not getting into that one we're not getting into it we're just talking about books but i just want to say hey if you're listening to this then you probably also love books so 
if you if there's anything you want to do, please go check out Pen Pen, Pen America. It's a great resource. Yeah. Also, you can look at like ALA.com. They have a little bit of information there about Band Book Week. But I'm gonna wrap it up there. Sorry to get so political, but no. you know, having books available for children, regardless of the content, it is important. Yeah, and just to kind of wrap up with you support your local library support yeah. your local like download movements. libby you download libby that's a great way to support your local don't let people on reddit tell you that download libby is like a, a no, bad thing to do even it's if fine. it is expensive you utilizing the service that the library is offering is only going to allow the library to then get more money to fund it better exactly but i just because it's a pet peeve of mine and i'm so glad you did this is when you see banned book week try to really consider the importance of not banning books because books like Catcher in the Rye and Gatsby weren't banned because they were actually explicit. They were banned because they promoted uh, a different a, way of thinking. Uh, they promoted questioning the world we live in. Gatsby is a huge critique on capitalism mm-hmm. and and uh, generational wealth. Yep. And, you know, capitalism is fine in many ways, but it is very worthy of questioning. And, and Catcher in the Rye was a book about trauma and a book about expressing yourself in a world that tries to squash people expressing their feelings and trying to come to terms with the trauma and in a world that tries to hide that. And that book tried to promote actually questioning things and trying to figure out why you feel the way you do. And that's why they actually banned it. It's not because he said damn and hell in it. And so those things seem silly now, but it mattered that they were banned. And there's a lot of kids who could have got helped by those books that didn't. And that same thing's happening now. And it's dumb. And so just take it seriously, is what I'm saying. It's yeah. like Band Book Week. It's not just a Barnes & Noble promotion. It's a real thing. And so, like, just think of that. And if you do love books like we do, where you get all yelly and excited and cry about them, <laughs> just, you know, find ways to support your library and stuff. And we'll stop yelling at you about it. Yeah. But yeah. Band Book Week, I'm glad we covered it because it's really important. It's it like uh, It's like our spring break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've just been naked in the house, just, you know, looking at all the naughty books <laughs> that we weren't supposed to read. But anyways, guys, join us next time. We're going to be reading the fourth book in the series of Unfortunate Events. Thanks for getting this far, if you are listening currently. Um, (laughs) If you really like us, you can check us out at social media. Our handle is... You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and our email, all at NSYAPod. There it is. At whatever the spot you're looking at it for. Yeah. So Gmail gmail for the email. We're terrible at this. We are. I, I've used all my knowledge. I used all my cognitive ability it's yelling fine. about books. It's fine. Read the description of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. What I love about Arthur Miller. And right. The Crucible, right. which came out because it was a critique it's, of it's, Yeah, it's a play on like the Red Scare. It's not really about it, Well, Arthur Miller uh, married for a time Marilyn Monroe. Right. And if you've seen that man, you will know that he is a testament to the power of writing. Because that man was <laughs> not he, attractive I enough to marry. I bet he was barely. a funny guy. I don't think he was. <laughs> I really, I, I don't think he was funny at all. I think he was a very serious man tragic i think he's very serious he's no kennedy that's all i'll say ah i'll say that too also insert a lizzo flute reference yeah she's our president now thank god